0: In verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As Jesus approached the gates of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on God's people. This word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Let's pray together, please. You whose word raises the dead, speak a word to us this day through a song, through a sermon, through a scripture, through the sacred meal we eat together, through the community gathered. May healing happen. May people find what they most deeply need, that which will bring us life at its fullest. In the name of the one who said, I've come to bring life at its fullest. Jesus the Lord, we pray. Amen. Nothing is certain, said Benjamin Franklin, but death and taxes. But that may not be for long if the medical science field has anything to do with it, or the Tea Party has anything to do with it. I don't question the power of the tea party, but I frankly think science is in for a losing battle. The reality is that death comes. Our bodies, as much as we love and pamper them, have an expiration date on them. They're like the refrigerators we use, the cars we drive, the computers we use. They're not going to last forever, so Jesus Challenging death seems to me to be a kind of exercise in futility. He can delay death, but he can't really deny death. And yet, as Jesus approaches the village of Nain, which is near Nazareth, as he's coming into the town, out of town is coming a funeral procession. You and I are familiar with these. We live in the city where... Especially if you live anywhere near Cave Hill Cemetery, you see them all the time. The headlights on, the hearse, the limousines, the cars moving slowly, each one having the little purple flag that's been stuck over the driver's seat. Luke says that the person who died is the only son of a woman who has lost her husband as well. She's a widow. And now twice grieving. But not only grieving. Because this isn't just about sorrow. This is about the reality that this woman has lost her last means of support. In a culture where there was no social system to care for for a widow. She's She's not only grieving. She's in an economic crisis. Much like the woman... That Renee read about from first Kings seventeen, who was preparing her last meal for her son and her to eat and die. This woman is as good as dead. So the death is not just about the son on the funeral bier, the death is also about the mother, the widow. Death is whatever kills or exterminates the fullness of life in the here and now. It's whatever makes your life dead and numb and void of the purpose and peace that God wants to give us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, The thief comes to destroy and steal. I've come that you might have life, life in all of its fullness, and there's the battlefield, to contend against those forces of death that permeate our culture, not just in funeral homes, but in boardrooms, in classrooms, in homes, in neighborhoods where death pervades. Luke tells us that when Jesus sees this now childless widow, he has compassion for her. Frankly, many of us, when we think of the word compassion, we usually think of feeling bad for another person. Oh, that's, that's too bad that happened to you. Oh, well, nothing's certain except death and taxes. Like Ben Franklin said, que sera, rah I'm sorry. There's nothing I can really do. A few weeks ago, in a sermon, I referenced the terrible tragedy that happened in the country of Bangladesh, where the garment factory collapsed. This six-story building suddenly collapsed, and 1,100 people, think of this, 1,100 people were killed. And I asked some questions about, what do we do? What, What do we do? What does it mean to have compassion? Later in the week, I started an email conversation with friends in Texas, friends here, some of you all. We talked about what it means for us that The clothes that we buy so cheaply and easily and freely uh, are being made in these conditions. And as the week went on, the conclusion was, well, there's nothing we can really do. I mean, how are you going to fight the powers? Where would we buy our clothes if we didn't buy these clothes that are made in places like Bangladesh? And even if you... attack the issue in Bangladesh, it'll just move to another impoverished country, so therefore, there's really nothing we can do. That wasn't what Jesus meant by compassion. For Jesus' compassion, the very word means just from his very guts, For, for Jesus' compassion is about making another person's problem your problem. Another person's risk Your risk. Another person's anxiety. Your anxiety. Another person's life. Your life. He's talking about something more than feelings. He's talking about action. Taking the risk. Challenging death's progress. And being willing to throw yourself at trying to be part of the great reversal. That Jesus talks about when he says, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. The great reversal. The kingdom of God. The will, the dream that God had for all of creation. May we be part of the great reversal. And so Jesus stands like like David before Goliath. He, He stands like that soldier. We remember the picture of the soldier from 1989 standing in Tiananmen Square before the tanks. He stands before the funeral procession and touches the casket, which is, of course, a no-no. It's a religious impurity. And he says to the pallbearers, Stop. Then Jesus says, Young man, I say to you, and here's where we have a divergence. Here's where we have a a fork in the road, if you will. What are we to make of this story? Is this story about the miracle-working power of Jesus, which proves his divinity, which calls you and me to gather on Sunday mornings and occasions like this to sing his praise and celebrate that we're on his team? Or might this be the invitation to celebrate and worship and praise the divine, sacred power of love made flesh that stands up in the face of death itself and says, Stop. And the invitation, not just to celebrate what he did, but to join in this great reversal. If our option is the first road, then what we do on Sunday is we gather and we sing and we praise and we make sure we're right with God and then we go home. If it's the second, we celebrate the power of divinity and this sacred way of life and truth that is God, that is God, and then we follow it. Follow it. We enact it. Young man, I say to you, rise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and in words that remind us of the story of Elijah and the widow at Zarephath Luke says Jesus gave the man back to his mother For you see the focus is not the man the focus is the mother Let me be clear, it is a stunning miracle. For love embodied to have such extraordinary power to confront the dead and reverse its course, that's a miracle. And I believe it. But there's more this story reveals God. The God that we talked about at the beginning of this hour when we read from Psalm 146, this God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoner free, who opens the eyes of the blind, who lifts up those who are bowed down, who loves the righteous, who watches over the stranger, who upholds the orphan and the widow. We say, this is what God does. This is what the work of love is about. And because God notices the need, because God embodied is willing to become unclean in order to stop and do the healing, we recognize the restoration is not only about the man, it's about the mother. This is what God does. And there's still more. Just as this miracle is both about man and mother, it's also about Jesus, and it's about you, me, us together. Being called to be part of this great reversal in the world. Being called to unmask the social conditions that make the poor poor and and leave them vulnerable and often invisible. It's our calling. It's who we are. The crowd understood this. What they say is a great prophet has arisen among us. A prophet is one who is telling the word, not just doing miraculous deeds, but calling the people together. They say to each other, God has visited and looked with favor upon God's people. I think of the words later in the 7th chapter of Luke when John the Baptist sends some of his followers to Jesus asking, Are you the one that is to come or should we look for another? And what Jesus said in response is not anything to do with doctrine or beliefs Or having our theology just right. What he said was this. You go and and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame are able to be healed. The lepers are made clean. The deaf get their hearing. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is anyone. Are you listening? Blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at this. For you see, it is a great reversal. One of my heroes died this week. His name is Will Campbell. There's a pretty good chance you've never heard of his name. He was born in Mississippi, and after getting educated up north, he returned to the south to see if he could get some of that out of him. But what he found when he got back to the south was that the church in the late 40s and the early 1950s was really paralyzed in its own status quo. Segregation was the order of the day, and frankly, the church was leading the parade to retain segregation. Somewhere along the line, Will Campbell got infected by the gospel. It got into his DNA. And even though he loved the South, He couldn't participate in the segregation and the status quo of the established church. And so he became kind of a renegade minister of the South. His his most famous line was, uh, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. Like I said, you may not know his name, but you would know many of the things that he helped put into place things like civil rights marches things like counter protests at the at the daily uh, lunchroom counters the meetings that were held to strategize on how to break this system and how to reverse the way the world had always gone how to do really something miraculous he was part of the great reversal New York Times this week said, even though you may not know his name, his fingerprints were everywhere on the issues that mattered in his day. Here's an interesting side note about Will Campbell. In addition to being one of the champions of the civil rights movement, he also was sort of an unofficial chaplain and friends to the members of the Ku Klux Klan in the South. He liked to drink whiskey with them and talk and pray and hear them. He said later, I understand the resentment of the racists, his hostility and frustration, and the need for someone to blame and punish. You see, Will Campbell knew, as I said, we're all bastards. But God loves us anyway. So he took the gospel to them, too. He knew they were broken, and he knew that they were captive to prejudice and Fear, And so he said, we've got to love the racist with the same love that we're commanded to shower on the victims of their frustration and hostility. And so later, when James Earl Ray shot and killed Will Campbell's dear friend, Martin Luther King Jr., Will Campbell went to the prison and visited with and prayed with James Earl Ray. The guy was kind of crazy. You might say he was crazy for God. I appreciate everyone being here this morning. Thanks for coming. Let me ask a question. What if church... What if church... Were the craziest part of our week. What if what we do here on Sunday when we got together was the wildest thing you did all week long? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, my life would be pretty boring, apparently. (laughs) But let's say you had your life and someone said, What'd you do this week? Well, you know, of course I worked. Friday night, got with some friends and kind of kicked up our heels a little bit. Saturday, I went hang gliding, and I ran in this color run and let people throw colors all over me. But then on Sunday morning, I did something crazy. I went to church. And they started talking about this great reversal. They had this idea of stopping funeral processions, of just standing there and saying, stop. And changing the systems and the way the world works. To stand up against this culture of death where kids are ignored and greed is glorified. And they want us, this church, they want us to fight the odds of going up against Goliath. Whether its name is Gap or Coles or Target or the gross domestic product, or any of the systems that we will talk about and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. They want us to do something about it. They want us to be part of the change in the world that God dreams. And so we're going to gamble on who we are, what we have. We're going to risk our reputation so that we say, we don't just believe in Jesus. We're following Jesus. Would you still show up? What if that's what it meant to be a member of Highland Baptist Church? What if that, that kind of radical, crazy belief in God is what this meal represents? One who gives his life in love and on the third day has it given back to him. What if that's what this meal represents? Are you hungry for something like that? Let's pray together. We ask you to invade this important but routine service of worship and send your spirit. To make the work of love embodied again in followers of Jesus in our day, in our lives, in these bodies. May we praise our maker while there's breath. And when our voice is lost in death, may praise, trust, belief in you employ our nobler power. In the name of the one who conquers death, Jesus our Lord. Amen. The hymn is